You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. We praise you, Father, Son, and Spirit, for your abundant goodness to us. We thank you that we join all of creation today in singing your praise, what we were made to do. We pray now that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on the reading and preaching of your word, that we would be those who do not just hear and walk away unchanged, but that we would respond by the power of your Spirit with obedience and love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning, church family. Great to see all of you. This is our third Sunday, our third week in this summer series that we're doing called Practicing the Good Life, an Invitation to Abundance. The premise of this is that as we are all kind of getting ready or already have jumped back into some semblance of normal life, we're really inviting you to take a pause before you just restore your life exactly the way it was before, before the pandemic, and think about what is it actually that God says makes for a good life? You might need to take some serious um, questioning and thought and intentionality and deliberateness to rearrange your life differently around the way that God defines what makes for goodness. So uh, today we're looking at um, this wonderful invitation of Jesus. It's called an invitation to communion. And we're looking at one of his great texts um, in which he describes what this communion is like. It's from John 15. So let's hear God's word. Um, as uh, Chris and Bethany Porter read it to us. John 15, 5 through 8. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This past week, I I spent the week uh, in the mountains of Western North Carolina with my mom and dad. Um, dropped my girls off at camp last Sunday and got to spend the week there with them. And I love being in that part of the country. I especially love being up in the woods. Um, this is, I actually took a picture to show you. Um, I spent a lot of time um, up there in the mountain forests. I love the woods, I love forests, I love trees. Um, there is something about um, the coolness and the quiet and the solitude and the recognition that all of this verdant life is happening without the presence of human beings that brings me just a, a lot of joy. Um, so I was, because I love trees, I was fascinated by um, when the German forester Peter Wachleben came out with this incredible book a couple years ago called The Secret Life of Trees. The Secret Life of Trees. Um, So this forester, one day, he's walking through the woods and he comes across an ancient stump, which appears to be thoroughly dead. Uh, But upon further examination of the stump, he realizes that it is actually producing chlorophyll, which is impossible if it's a dead stump and has no trees and no branches or leaves. And so he begins to study it and he realizes that the trees around the stump 
are keeping it alive by sending it its very, their very own life. And so this opens them up to these amazing discoveries about the interconnected life of trees. So for example, when a tree in the forest is diseased, then the other trees will send critical nutrition through the root systems and the fungi networks beneath the soil surface um, and actually provide life support for the tree until it is nursed back to life again. Um, trees also communicate with each other. If an invasive insect like a beetle begins to bore into one tree, that tree will send signals through the hidden connections in the hummus by warning the other trees of the enemy. And so the forest then will respond by producing these immune defenses, which they send up their trunks and through the leaves. So it's just truly a phenomenal secret life of trees. Next time you walk through a forest, take this in, that what you are seeing are not individual trees, but you are actually seeing an unhidden, shared life, hidden from view, a deep life connection pulsing in and through the forest. This series is about what it means to live the good life. Not the good life, as the world around us defines it, of success and wealth and busyness and exhaustion and self-actualization, but the good life created and given by God, uh, the life of goodness that he has designed for us. And today we're looking at the mysterious and amazing truth that the good life that God designed for us is one of union and communion with God himself. The same kind of interconnected life that exists between the trees of the forest, God actually desires that we would have that kind of experience with him, that God created us for a deep, interconnected life with him in which we share the very life of the Trinity, God himself. Rankin Wilburn, um, a pastor and friend of mine, wrote this, that the highest good of human life, indeed the purpose of creation and redemption, is communion with God. Jesus couldn't have made it more clear with this metaphor um, on, of the vine. Um, he said this, that just as a branch, this is actually a photo that our covenant partner Patrick Hiltz took of some grapes that he and his wife are growing in their backyard. Um, Jesus said this, look at, look at that image. He said, as a branch is united to the vine, your relationship to me can be like that. That as the branch... The vine, the branch draws life and vitality and sustenance and immunity and resilience. And as a result, these blossoming fruits come forth. So my relationship with you and yours with me can be like that. Jesus is actually offering you this invitation that your life can become one shared existence with me. Do y'all get that? Jesus is offering that, that your life can be of a shared existence with the very one through whom all things were made. You can draw life and power and goodness and resiliency from a deep life connection with Jesus so that your life is lived out of a shared, hidden connection with the God of all things. This is an amazing invitation. It's an invitation to connection and communion with God. This is what you were made for. 
And Jesus says, this is what makes life good. So let's look at it. Let's look at what this is and then how we get it. Okay, so first of all, union and communion with God. What is it? This, this idea, especially this concept of union with God, might sound a little weird to you. Maybe you've never even heard this language before, but it's actually ancient language that the church has taught for millennia. Um, Henry Skugel was a pastor in the 17th century, and he actually is credited for converting John and Charles Wesley, uh, the, the founders of the Methodist faith. And Skugel, in a letter in 1677, wrote this. True Christianity is a union of the soul with God, a real participation in the divine nature, the very image of God drawn upon the soul, or in the apostle Paul's phrase, it is Christ formed within us, a divine life. Look at that phrase. True Christianity is a union of the soul with God. Now, does that freak you out a little bit? I mean, some of you might even, that might even sound like new age or heretical or something. And yet, this is what Jesus teaches again and again. I just want you to imagine this scene for a moment, okay? Imagine you're a disciple, and you're hanging out with Jesus for a couple of years, and you're just watching the way he relates to God. You have never seen someone with this kind of intimate connection with God. You've never seen someone commune with God this way. You've never seen someone be able to have this kind of deep relationship with the God that you have been told all of your life is terrifying and will strike you dead. (laughs) And they're so curious and hungry for that kind of intimacy that they see that Jesus has with God, that they ask him, how do we get that? In fact, at one point they say, can you teach us to pray and talk and converse with God the way that you do? And you can just imagine Jesus coming up to one of them. Maybe he puts his arm around their shoulder and he has a big smile on his face and he says, here, listen, here's what you do. Just say this, our father, our father. Which, you know, to us, it's, we hear that every week, we don't even think about it, but to hear that Jesus says, my father is now your father. My relationship with the eternal God can now be your relationship with the eternal God. You are loved as I am loved. You can have the same deep interconnected communion with God that I have had for all eternity. My father, now your father. How can this be? John Calvin uh, says it like this. It's a little confusing, so I've broken it into four lines uh, to help us understand what Calvin's saying. He says, Jesus Christ, though he is the true son, has of himself been given us as a brother that what he has of his own nature, by nature, may become ours by benefit of adoption. Let me, let me explain that class for a moment. First, he says, Jesus Christ, though he is the true son. What does that mean? That means that Jesus is the only eternally begotten son of the Father. There is no other divine son of God like Jesus. For all eternity, Jesus Christ has existed in perfect, joyful communion and relationship with God the Father and God the Spirit. For all eternity, the joyful dance. Of, of the Trinity. So that's who he is by nature, right? Has, second line, has of himself been given us as a brother. So just like you're given a gift and you can unwrap it, God has given the gift of his son, Jesus Christ, to us. He lived for us. He died for us. He became one with us that we might become one with him. 
The purpose, line three, that what he has of his own by nature, what does Jesus have by nature? An eternal, joyful, interconnected, deep union with the Father and the Spirit. That is his by nature. Fourth line, may become ours by benefit of adoption. So what is Jesus's by nature? He gives to us by adoption. So his father becomes our father. His experience of eternal love and union with God becomes our experience of eternal love and union with God. His continuous access to God in prayer and communion and conversation becomes our continuous access to God. Jesus literally prayed for this. One of the last things he asked for us in John 17, he said, may they all be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, I have given them the glory that you give me that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. This is the last thing that Jesus asked for us, that we can have the same deep oneness and union and connection with God as Jesus had within the Trinity for all eternity. Are you all grasping the, the weight and the beauty of this offer? You know, we, we, use, we, use, um, we, we use phrases to describe Christianity like, oh, have faith in Christ. And you know, that's true. There's a lot of language about that in the New Testament. But you know, you can have faith in Christ. You can believe all the right things about Jesus. You can believe all the right doctrine. You can have all the right stuff put together theologically about who God is and have no intimate, deep union and connection with the God who loves you. You know, I know my, I know a lot about my doctor. I know what school he went to, I know his credentials. I see him occasionally. <laughs> but I don't have a, I don't have a sh deep, intimate, shared life with my doctor. I mean, frankly, that would be weird, right? <laughs> And yet for so many Christians, this is, what, this is what they're content with in their Christian life. That kind of relationship with God, right? Like go to church, learn some stuff, read the Bible occasionally, maybe shoot up some prayers every once in a while, maybe go on some mission trips or do some service work. All the while, Jesus is offering a deeply shared, hidden, profound, interconnected life with the Godhead. That's what he's offering. And that all of our energy and strength and vitality, endurance and patience and love and resilience, all of it would flow out of God's shared life with us like a branch drawing life from the vine. Don't you want that? Don't you want that? Who wants to be religious? What we want, what our souls crave is union with God. That's what makes life good. So how do we get it? How do we get it? Well, here's the good news. First of all, union with God is a gift. It's a gift that Jesus has won for us in the gospel. That's what the gospel is, that we were separated from God, and Jesus lived and died and rose, that we might be reunited with the God who loves us. It is a gift. It was won by Jesus on the cross. He tore down the separation between us and the Father. And now through his risen life and the gift of the Spirit, 
we are united to God through Christ. Anyone who receives the gift freely may be united to God forever. It is just as, like I said two weeks ago, like the legal fact of a marriage union or the legal fact of a child's adoption is done, you are united to God forever. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. No behavior, no faithfulness or unfaithfulness on your part. It is a fixed reality. You are one with God in Christ. But I do want to go back to something I said two weeks ago, that while our union with God through Christ is a gift, our communion with God through Christ requires our participation, right? We can nurture it, deepen it. Just as in marriage, the legal fact of your union with your spouse does not change from day to day, but your experience of that union does fluctuate by the years. So the love of God for you never changes, but your experience of his love through your own participation can fluctuate day by day, season by season. And this is why Jesus actually exhorts us in this passage, John 15, remain, remain in my love. Other translations, abide in my love. Make your home in my love. Stay joined to me in my love. Jesus is exhorting us, y'all, you participate in this union you now have with God by communing with ongoing connection and communication with me. So today I wanna to talk about one practical way that we participate in our union with God and practice that through the practice of prayer. Prayer is participation in our communion with God. Ruth Haley Barton says this, prayer is all the ways in which we communicate and commune with God. The fundamental purpose of prayer is to deepen our intimacy with God. Notice that prayer is more about relationship than performing a task. It's more about cultivating our connection and communion with God than working through a list. Prayer is about living in deep communion with the God who loves us in ongoing dependency and connection as a branch is connected to the vine. So I just wanna finish the sermon by talking about a couple of ways that we can practice prayer as living in communion with God. The best way to learn how to pray is by looking at Jesus. Jesus is not just fully God, he's fully human. And so he teaches us how to live as a human being in deep communion with the God who loves us. And when you look at Jesus, you see there's two different ways that Jesus prayed. There's two different ways that he lived in communion with God. One is through set times of prayer, and the other is through ongoing communion with prayer. So we're first gonna talk about the first, set times of communion with God. Y'all, there is no substitute for setting aside time and space for communion with God. And remember, this is about relationship. In a marriage, if the only time you ever communicate with your spouse is saying hi in the morning, bye at night, and no interaction whatsoever, the relationship grows cold. The same with God. You won't grow in intimacy with God on the fly. It just doesn't happen. Jesus being Jewish, thoroughly Jewish, he seemed to keep the same tradition of the ancient Jewish community of following set times for prayer throughout the day. So you see Jesus, uh, for example, Psalm 119, verse 164 says, seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous judgments. This was very much the way that the Jewish faith was practiced in the early New Testament time. So we see Jesus keeping off, he would often go out in the early morning before it was still dark. We see him oftentimes 
going to the temple for times of prayer throughout the day. Uh, in Acts chapter three, we see Peter and John going up to the temple at the ninth hour for prayers. That was the afternoon time for prayer at 3 p.m. This carried right into the monastic period where monks divided the day according to seven appointed times of prayer, 6 a.m., 9 a.m., noon, 3 p.m., 6 p.m., 9 p.m., and vigils, which is 3 a.m. Sometimes this is called the daily office. Sometimes this is called keeping the hours. But the point of all of it is that it is a purposeful arrangement of the day to regularly return to communion with God. Habitual times to turn your heart and mind back to him. So my own practice, I started keeping the hours years ago. And so my own practice is that I spend a longer time of prayer and scripture meditation in the morning. Uh, And then about 10 a.m. I do a one minute pause. After lunch, I do about five minutes of just reading a psalm and reflecting. And 2 p.m. I do a one minute pause. And then before I go to bed, um, I pause to turn my heart and mind back to God entrusting everything from the day and everyone from the day into the hands of the Father. I don't do the, the 3 a.m. thing unless my bladder you know, calls for it and, uh, and, then, I'll, and then I'll do that. Um, so by, by keeping set times of prayer, we are reorienting ourselves again and again to God as a primary reality, recentering ourselves in God's presence, cultivating our intimacy with him in the way that we arrange our day. If Jesus set aside time to deeply commune with his father, how much more important (laughs) is it for us? Right, so that's set times. The second thing that we see Jesus doing is we see him in continual communion with God, all the time. All the time you see him calling, talking to the father, sending up prayers to the father, asking for help from the father. Jesus was in constant communication with the father like a branch in the vine. Paul spoke this way about prayer. He says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray continually. He doesn't mean sit in a chapel on your knees and pray all day. You never get anything done. What he means is think, live, parent, work, speak all the time in the presence of God every moment. One of the people that I have personally been fascinated by is a 17th century monk named Brother Lawrence. Brother Lawrence wrote a, a book called The Practice of the Presence of God. And At the time, he was actually a nobody. He was not an important monk who went to the chapel to pray every day. He was a kitchen monk. So he worked in the kitchen and washed the dishes. And yet, he found a way to remain in communion with God throughout his entire day. So he wrote in this book, the time of busyness is not for me different from the time of prayer. And the noise and clatter of my kitchen, when several people are calling at me for different things, I possess God in as great as tranquility as I were on my knees taking the blessed sacrament. So for him, he finds no difference between the set times of prayer or being in chapel and his daily work because he feels like he's communing with God in both places. He says he lives in a, quote, habitual, silent, and secret conversation of the soul with God. Now, you might be saying, dude, that's a monk. You know, he's like a spiritual ninja. How do you expect me to do that? Well, if you read the book, he's actually very human. And he writes about how He's constantly struggling, that it took him many years to even just get his mind to calm down. That, you know, he was really, there were so many years where he just felt nothing, it was emptiness, right? And yet, what he says is what started with deliberation has now become habitual, and that learning to attend to God's presence has taken, you guessed it, practice. It takes practice, like anything else. 
He's, 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 that's why it's called practicing the presence of God. He's not talking about bringing God into your everyday because God's already there. It's about noticing the presence of God and tending to and responding to his loving presence throughout the day. See, we've been trained for the opposite, to live self-sufficient, independent lives. We don't have to believe in God to make sense of the world anymore. Even if you do believe in God, you don't have to think about him on a daily basis to do life and to make it work. We have so much technology and information and distraction that our spiritual imaginations, our capacity to see God throughout our day has shrunk so that we can barely notice him in everyday life. This was made apparent to me um, a few weeks ago. Um, It was a Saturday and my wife, Sarah, um, who's a public health nurse, was running a COVID vaccination clinic in a poor part of a blighted urban area in our city. And I was there waiting to pick her up. And so I was standing outside the clinic on the street and it was a hot day and there was nowhere to sit. So I was just standing there and a security guard came up to me and he said, oh, your wife is running the clinic inside. I said, yeah. And he said, here's a chair. Why don't you have a seat and so you don't have to stand up. And he set a chair down for me in the shade. And I said, thanks so much. And I, and I sat down and a little old lady who was walking by with her walker, she looked at me and she said, isn't God so good? to give you that chair. Isn't he so good? And I suddenly, my imagination was suddenly blown open. I missed it. I missed the kindness of God. I missed his care. I mean, and it took this spiritual ninja, this woman who probably had been so practiced for all of these decades because of the dependent life that she lived on her God. It took her to open my eyes to see the kindness of God. So how can we see that? How can we notice God's presence and respond to it? Let me just give you a couple little things. First, one-minute pauses are fantastic. Um, I'm sorry, I have one, one more quote here. The art of the awareness of God, the art of sensing and living in his presence in our daily lives cannot be learned offhand. It must be trained. It takes training to learn to see and respond to the loving presence and kindness of God. So here's a few ways that we can do that throughout our day. First of all, I, I'm gonna, we're gonna keep commending these one minute pauses. Not just at set times, but transitioning during meetings. That's a big one for me. So if you're just jumping from one meeting to another, taking a one minute pause. Transitioning from the car to the house. Transitioning from the car to the grocery store. Transitioning from getting off your email to going to doing something else. Taking a one minute pause. Recentering your life. Back to the God who loves you. One minute pauses. Second one, um, what, what Doug McKelvey calls liturgies of the moment. This is actually looking for triggers in everyday life to trigger your heart uh, to respond to the loving presence of God. So if anything good happens, first cup of coffee, first sip of coffee, a uh, hot shower, a parking spot in downtown, <laughs> whatever it might be, anything good, you trigger that liturgy of gratitude that we say every time we take communion, hear the praise of this grateful heart. Hear the praise of this grateful heart. When anybody comes into your mind throughout the day, let it be a trigger for you. Not to pray some long prayer, but just to lift their name up to Jesus. What I say is, I say, Jesus, hold her in your perfect prayer. That's all I say. Hold Vicky. I think of Vicky. Hold Vicky in your perfect prayer. You know, walking into a really difficult meeting, Walking into a room where my teenagers are sitting, where I know I'm going to have to have a really hard conversation with them, and there's going to be a lot of tears. Just crying, Jesus, have mercy on me. 
Jesus, have mercy on me. Looking for everyday triggers to have these momentary liturgies to turn your heart back to the one who loves you. And last thing I would say is breath prayer. I'm a big advocate for breath prayers where you just, the classic breath prayer is Jesus of Nazareth, have mercy on me. Where you inhale, say Jesus of Nazareth, exhale, have mercy on me. You can make up your own breath prayer. Be still, know that I am God. I am in Christ, Christ is in me. And this is a prayer you say quietly and silently throughout your entire day. As you're walking down the street, as you're sitting in meetings, letting your breath guide you to recenter your life back in the God who loves you. I'm gonna do a little workshop on Thursday night about communing prayer practices. I have a lot more time to, to go into this. We'll be online, send the link on Tuesday and Thursday in the email. The purpose of all of this is to return again and again back to the vine, to the source, to live in communion with the God that you are united to. So let me sum up. God made you for union with him. Jesus is offering you something truly astonishing, not religion, not a set of rules, but shared life with the eternal trinity. Deep, ongoing communion with the God who loves you. Jesus says all of the fruitfulness of your life will flow out of that deep, united connection with him. If there is one secret to a prayerful life of communion with God, it is this, dependence. Apart from me, Jesus says, you can do a smidge. No, actually, he doesn't say that. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus doesn't want us to be a big, solitary oak tree sitting up on a majestic hill, towering in our own strength, un lack, lacking in nothing to face the challenges of the world. No. Jesus wants us to be a sapling in a forest of verdant life. He wants us to be a little branch hanging onto a vine. The more you understand your profound need and helplessness, the more you see that the love of God is the only source of life that can produce the fruit that you long for, the more you will live in prayerful, deep, shared, communing with the God who loves you. Let's pray. Let's take a moment to hear these words of Jesus and rest in them for a moment. Remain in my love. Remain in my love. Thank you, Jesus, for your astonishing invitation to be linked to you organically as a branch is linked to the vine. Thank you that you offer us, through your death and resurrection, the very thing that God made us for, eternal union with the Godhead. Help us to not settle for religion, but to grasp and work hard after that deep communion that you made us for. Help us to order our lives differently, order our days and our time differently, that we might live in deep communion with you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.